Dress. The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dress listeners, some of you might recall a few weeks ago on our episode on the exhibition Threads of Power. Lace from the Textile Museum St. Gallen, I ever so briefly mentioned that today's guest would be joining us. And Cass and I are always delighted when makers join us on the show to share their creative process and inside knowledge of their art form or their craft. And of course, on many other episodes, we focus less on the making of articles and dress and chat with historians unpacking the social and cultural histories of clothing. But this week, we are going to do both. Yeah, because we are so excited to have lace maker and historian Elena Kanagi Liu join us for a two-part episode this week to discuss the history of lace making and lace makers, as well as the contemporary lace making scene today, which she is, of course, a part of. We're going to talk about her extraordinary work. Elena is the founder of the Brooklyn Lace Guild and serves as a collection specialist at the Antonio Roddy Center at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. Her work is currently on view as part of the aforementioned Threads of Power exhibition at the Bard's Graduate Center, and that exhibit runs through January 1st of next year. Elena, thank you so much for joining us this week. Elena, a very warm welcome to Dressed. Thank you, April. I've been listening to Dressed, as you know, since the very first episode, so it's really an honor to be here. Yeah, so this episode has been a few years in the making. Um, you and I chatted about it a while ago, but that was kind of like pre-pandemic, and then, you know, things all went haywire, but here we are. <laughs> so, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so um, we have had more than a few makers on the podcast, but perhaps few as specific in their craft as you. And we're going to cover a ton of ground today from lace history to techniques and technologies that you have personally experienced or experimented with. Um, We're also going to talk about some of the contemporary makers that practice the art of lace making by hand today, of which you are one of note. But before we get into all of that, I'm kind of hoping that you might tell us a little bit about your background and your initial forays into working in the field of fashion. Excellent. Yeah. Whenever I talk about myself and my, you know, interest in textiles and love of lace, I have to start all the way back with my Amish grandparents, who my grandfather was born Amish in Pennsylvania and decided to leave the community and eventually became um, a missionary with my grandma to Tokyo starting in the 50s, where my mom was born and raised. And so by the time I came around, I sort of grew up between Mennonite and Amish communities in Pennsylvania and in Tokyo, um, where my mom worked. So my formative years were spent between sort of these Mennonite crafts like quilting and embroidery that were passed down by women in my family and in the DIY fashion scene in Tokyo. So I sort of was had this 360 view of making. Um, but when I first went to art school, when I was 17, I didn't know that you could study textiles as a medium, as an art form. So I originally majored in painting, thinking that painting equals fine art. But I would go home and embroider and sew every night. 
And eventually someone said, why aren't you in the fibrous program? And I was like, what's that? So I switched majors <laughs> and my, my life was forever changed and I've never looked back. So I ended up moving to New York in 2007 and my very first dip into the fashion world, I was very lucky to land a job working as Courtney Love's personal costume designer for both for her tour for her Nobody's Daughter tour, making her costumes, as well as for her line, short-lived line, Never the Bride. So custom draping garments and things like that. And I had only studied textiles, not fashion, but I was trained by my mom to make clothing. So it just came naturally to me. Uh, but eventually I switched and, you know, now I've moved into history, of course. Yes, yes, yes. And, and lace history specifically so I'm hoping um, you would tell us a little bit about when your fascination with lace began and also what was it that drew you to what some people might categorize as a lost art form. And if you want to elaborate or opine on that lost art form bit, I would love to hear your thoughts. <laughs> yeah. You know, some lace makers have a specific origin story, like they were on a family vacation to Bruges and they saw a lace maker and said, oh my God, I want to do that. And it's hard for me to pinpoint this sort of, pardon the pun, the specific moment when I, you know, discovered lace. But when I look backwards at my life today and at all the things that I've made and done, it just, it feels like everything in the world was leading me to lace my whole life. I just wasn't aware that it was a thing, um, but I'm sure I would have been obsessed with it earlier had I been familiar with it. So, you know, I grew up again with, surrounded by, you know, crafts in the home. My grandmother crocheted doilies and I learned to crochet as a teenager. And I remember even in my fiber arts program, I did this installation project of doilies, some of which I had bought, some I inherited, and some of which I had made. And my fiber art teacher, this was in the early 2000s, and the sort of mindset was that this is fine art, not craft. Um, so things have shifted these days. But I remember during my critique, my professor was like, oh, I get it. It's ironic. You're like critiquing doilies. And, you know, she thought I was taking a jab at this sort of thing that she didn't think was valuable. And I was like, absolutely not. And I fought with her. I was like, this is a celebration. I'm celebrating these lace doilies, you know. So when I look at stories like that, even though I wasn't a bobbin lace maker yet, I really feel like that kind of thing was the seeds of where I got to today. Um, and I'm very pleased to say that lace is far from a lost art. And in fact, it is enjoying a global renaissance, thanks in part to the availability of lace education online these days, which wasn't available when I started out. There's been a huge resurgence of interest in the field, not just in traditional techniques, but in totally contemporary and innovative, and even some intersection with STEM and mathematics and architecture and other projects as well. So it's really everywhere that I look. So, you know, it's funny to me when people come up to you as a lace maker, many of us have this experience when you're demonstrating publicly and say, oh, that's a lost art. And, I, and I'm like, but I'm here. I'm in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> don't negate my existence, yes, friends. Exactly. So, so don't worry. Um, there are many of us and we are actively working in moving the technique forward. So it's no, nowhere near disappearing. Yeah, right. So I love the fact that you just said moving the technique forward. That begs the question, how do you personally define lace? Oh, that's that's really difficult. And, you know, the deeper you dive into the world of lace, the more difficult it becomes to define it. So lace is really an umbrella term 
for myriad textile techniques, including bobbin lace, needle lace, tatting, crochet, knotted netting, cut work embroidery, and more. Some people traditionally consider bobbin and needle lace to be the only, quote, real laces, but I use a much broader and more inclusive definition of lace, which is that lace is a textile in which the pattern is defined by the spaces between the threads. Mm-hmm. And even that has gray areas and murky borders. So, you know, it's um, it's an evolving definition, but that's the one that I currently use. That's great. I love it. Well, some of our listeners will probably remember about a month ago or so ago, maybe like six weeks ago or so, uh, we aired a two-part episode on the Lace Exhibition Threads of Power, which is currently on view in New York City at the Bard Graduate Center. And in part one of that episode, Emma McCormick briefly talks about the two main types of lace, which you have already mentioned, needle lace and bobbin lace. And your specialty is bobbin lace. So I'm curious as to if there are any reasons behind your preference for bobbin lace as compared to needle lace. And might you give us a little bit of a bobbin lace 101 overview? So similar to the worlds of knitting and crochet, many people in the lace world have a preference or specialize in one type of lace, although Many people also do all kinds of lace, but mostly people have a preference. So like I mentioned, the first type of lace I ever made was crochet before I even knew that bobbin or needle lace existed. And since then, I've taken a variety of different lace classes, including needle lace and tatting. But bobbin lace just captured my heart immediately. (laughs) In fact, I've talked to lace makers through interviews that we'll discuss later. But um, I remember specifically talking to a French lace maker who said to me, Bobbin lace is a sickness, you know, you have it, (laughs) but in the best way, of course. So bobbin lace is fascinating to watch and draws you in immediately. And as a weaver, um, before I got into lace making, the technical process of interlacing the pairs of threads felt really akin to sort of off-loom weaving. So many people refer to bobbin lace that way. Whereas needle lace is more like embroidery, where you are working with a needle and thread making tiny repetitive stitches. And as much as I love it, making bobbin lace feels like solving a giant puzzle with hundreds of threads in a way that sort of scratches a specific itch in my brain. So it just captured me immediately. Um, So to make bobbin lace, you start with a very stiff base pillow, so not like a soft couch cushion. And they come in many different shapes and sizes depending on the region. And you typically pin a pricking or pattern card to the surface to work on top of. And then bobbins are wound with threads in pairs, which can be hung onto the pins at the starting point of the pattern. And then you take those bobbins and cross and twist them, which cross is left over right and twist is right over left, in pairs of bobbins to interlace the threads following the pattern below. And the pinning, the pins are inserted as you go as a sort of scaffolding to hold the tension in place. Mm -hmm. So contrary to some of my students' fears, when you unpin, nothing will fall apart. It's all sturdy. It's all interlaced tightly. Um, So it's not going to fall apart without the pins. And you're kind of following the pattern that you've already placed below on top of the pillow, right? Yeah, absolutely. And people always ask, like, how I know what bobbins to pick up in order to follow the pattern. And I always say it's kind of like playing the piano. So first you learn how to read music, but eventually once you play the same piece over and over again, your hands just know the keys by heart. So mm-hmm. um, you, it really becomes an embodied practice um, over time. And when you're finished, you can pull out the pins and voila, you have lace. 
you make it sound so simple, but it is actually not. <laughs> the base stitches are really simple. I promise people that are so intimidated. It's, it's really <laughs> start small and take baby steps. Right, right. I'm hoping that you could tell us a little bit about early lace making from a very particular kind of social and cultural standpoint. And also, was there a difference at this early point and then even moving onwards about how people perceived needle lace versus bobbin lace? Absolutely. Great question. Lace is kind of unusual in that there are so many different ways to make it, several of which emerged in tandem in the early 16th century. And the development of lace coincided, as you discussed in your episode with Emma and Michelle, with the new availability of printed pattern books, which were widely circulated around Europe. So those included many designs for elaborate cutwork and needle lace that were touted as popular hobbies for noble women. So you'll see a lot of lace pattern books from the Renaissance with titles like Patterns for Virtuous and Noble Matrons and Dedications for Aristocratic Women. However, most of these pattern books are for needle lace and embroidery, and only a handful, such as Le Pompe Opera Nova, a new model book, um, are exclusively for bobbin lace, which is kind of unusual. Um, this is in part due to the difficulty of depicting bobbin lace patterns in print, as you need to be able to like really clearly indicate the path of each pair of bobbins. You know, with needle lace, for the most part, you can just draw something and stitch it, like embroidery. But bobbin lace needs almost like a stitch diagram, like a circuit board where everything is traveling. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, Renaissance bobbin lace patterns, in my experience, are not always successful. So it indicates that makers would have needed a very high skill level to interpret them. They were not necessarily clear or accurate in the, in the way that the, the, the pairs thread. Some things they depict are impossible, actually. So I also theorize that the lack of bobbin lace patterns is due to the more working class nature of bobbin lace production, which was made in professional workshops versus needle lace, which was also made in professional workshops, but was, as I mentioned, widespread as a hobby of the wealthy classes. So to get to your question of perception, part of why that is, is because the gesture of your fingers when stitching needle lace was considered an elegant way to essentially show off a gentlewoman's hands. Whereas in bobbin lace, you are kind of making fists and clutching bobbins between your bent fingers, which they didn't consider elegant looking as a gesture. And it can even expand your knuckles over time if you make bobbin lace for many, many decades. But today, of course, there's enormous availability of bobbin lace patterns. So um, it's become much more popular and they both techniques persist. Mm -hmm. Do you think one is easier to learn than the other when first getting started? That's a great question. I think it depends. I think one of the reasons why, at least in the early period, um, needle lace specifically was so widespread as a hobby was because it's so related to embroidery and needlework, which young women were already well-trained and experienced in. And there are other simple braiding techniques that relate to bobbin lace that people would have been knowledgeable in doing in the home as well. But bobbin lace is just requires sort of like a higher degree of instruction in order to, for example, design your own patterns. Um, I didn't design my own pattern for six years after becoming a bobbin lace maker. Whereas with needle lace, you can essentially draw something and make it pretty early on. So I think that's not to say that needle lace is easy. In fact, it's more time consuming to make, but in a way learning it maybe is a little bit easier. 
Interesting. I, I like that kind of connection back to embroidery um, and some of those other basically needle arts that were considered part of a quote-unquote proper young lady's education um, in these eras. So that's why you were saying that they would have already been familiar with these techniques. Yeah. And just as an aside, one of my biggest gripes and sticking points in like period dramas is when people denigrate embroidery as a frivolous skill because needlework is so valuable. It teaches you dexterity. It was used to teach literacy, mathematics, geography. So really it's an incredibly valuable skill to have. So we we sort of undervalue it today, but um, it was important for your education, not just to be pretty. (laughs) <laughs> well, let's let's get into geography, right? Um, one of the things that you wanted to specifically talk about today, and I'm super excited to talk about this because it was or is kind of outside of the scope of our Threads of Power episode, which that exhibition focuses solely on European lace history. But I'm hoping that you will enlighten us all about the various forms of lace outside of Europe, because many of them predate European lace by centuries. So let's talk global lace history. Where and when would you like to start? Well, even if you don't take a super broad definition of lace the way that I do, lace still has ancient roots far deeper than bobbin and needle lace in early modern Europe. And some techniques like knotted netting go back as far as ancient Egypt. This was a technique I haven't mentioned much, but that you find in even in Western Europe predating needle and bobbin lace. So for example, in the Shanke civilization of ancient Peru, which dated between about 900 and 1476 AD, a type of gauze or knotted net was made with embroidered patterns, often of stylized figures of little animals, which are so adorable and wonderful. And it's similar to the later dual techniques of filet, which is like a knotted netting technique, mm-hmm. and burato in Italy, which is a woven gauze that's then darned. Um, so the base technique is different, but the stitches used to make the designs are similar. So that has a parallel then between, you know, this ancient civilization and Europe, but one predates the other. So there are some examples of Shanke gauze I've also seen that to me resemble half stitch in bobbin lace, but I haven't had the opportunity to dig into that at all. So that perhaps will be a future research rabbit hole. Um, And I also wanted to mention a very little known piece of early lace in North America, an ancient bobbin lace fragment was excavated from the Spiro Mounds archaeological site in 1937 and is believed to be from the Cadoan Mississippian culture. So in 2018, this incredibly rare piece of lace was classed as one of the top 10 endangered artifacts in the state of Oklahoma. And today it resides in the Spiro Mounds Archaeological Center, where excitingly they have been working with a bobbin lace maker, Arlene Scaroni, to reproduce the fragment. And Hopefully there'll be more research published on these laces in the future, but for now there is very little out there. Um, But it's very cool to know that these things existed. And of course they didn't exist in a vacuum for these techniques to have developed. It would have had to be over many years or decades or even centuries. And likely hand down from generation to generation. Absolutely. Well, touching back on a little bit on the origins of lace in Europe, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts, because I know you've thought about this quite a lot, about why it emerged precisely at that moment in the 15th century and 
why was it in Europe then when other cultures had been kind of making lace for centuries prior? So there are a number of factors that kind of convened at the same time to encourage the development of lace in Europe. As I mentioned, the development of printing technology to allow the circulation of pattern books, also the availability of cheap skilled labor by women in convents and schools. Which I think we're going to talk about more. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And the desire for increasingly elaborate fashion by aristocrats whose wealth was growing through colonial expansion. So you know, lace is emerging kind of at the same time as the development of colonialism and capitalism. And unfortunately, I'm not sure if it would have developed to the heights that it has if it weren't that it emerged at that precise moment. Mm -hmm. So anyone who has ever dived down the rabbit hole or fell down the rabbit hole of watching lace making videos on YouTube will know that lace making is an incredibly embodied practice. And as a historian, there has to be something magical for you personally when you start to understand this physical kinship, when you're actually practicing the thing that you're also studying. So how, as a maker, does lace inform your understanding of its past? And I would love to know more from you about the lives of some of its makers. You had mentioned um, that lace was being made in convents, and I'm sure you have plenty of anecdotal stories that you would like to share with our listeners about that. Yeah, absolutely. What's difficult about researching lace history, but also what makes it so fascinating, is that there is so little record of the lives and the stories of predominantly women who made this technique in history. You know, even lace history books like Santina Levy's Lace of History focus on the wealthy wearers of lace and the merchants of lace because we have documentation of them and we have the extant objects, but we don't have very much record of the lives of the makers. So in order to get to that, you sort of have to go through it as a maker yourself. And I found that, you know, not only do I feel connected to lace makers when I sit at my pillow, you know, and my hands are moving in these same gestures that women 500 years ago would have made, you know, I really feel connected to that lineage, but also that that is an avenue for looking at lace and understanding their histories a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Once you get really deep into it as a maker, you can, you can even sometimes identify different hands in one piece. Oh, that's interesting. As one of my lace mentors once say, you know, what, what was the lace maker feeling? And it might sound a little out there, but, you know, once you really get deep into the technical aspects, you can tell, oh, you're frustrated, you're making mistakes and you're leaving them. Or here, you're really in a flow because you can see and remember your own work that looks similarly. So, um, yes, the this sort of convent history goes closely with the origins of lace making. And in Venice in particular, where both bobbin and needle lace are said to have emerged in Western Europe, lace making mostly developed in convents, which continued to be a major source of lace production over the centuries. And part of that is because of how many convents and how many nuns there were. By the mid 16th century, there were over 30 recorded convents in Venice housing about 2,500 nuns, one third of whom were likely to be involuntary, meaning noble families at the time often paid large sums for their daughters' dowries in marriage. So they often sent several daughters to convents instead of marrying them off as it was much more affordable. And in addition to convents, lace production also took place in hospitali or charitable refuges 
created in the end of the 15th century as safe havens where basically abandoned young girls and young women or orphans without family protection were housed to essentially safeguard them supposedly from any sort of physical or moral danger. But really what they were doing was making a lot of money for, you know, the church and for the heads of the hospitali. Um, so the young women in the hospitali were allowed to keep a third of the profits of their work to eventually either pay for a dowry or to take the vow and join the convent. Um, and one such well-known institution was the Pia Casa delle Citele in Venice, which was founded in 1559 specifically to give a home to beautiful young orphans who, quote, without the protection of their families, were at risk of succumbing to sinful behavior, unquote. So <laughs> it's it's a little bit wild. There's a lot of, you know, these threads of sort of vice and virtue that run through the story of place history as well. Yeah. The thought was, or the premise was, that by keeping them within this institution and keeping them making lace. This was more or less safeguarding their moral chastity. Yeah, absolutely. The main purpose was to transform them into so-called women of worth and essentially to keep them busy and teach them something useful, but also, of course, to profit off of their labor. And the irony of this idea of lace-making and chastity, which comes up often in colonial expansion as well, lace is introduced internationally and is seen as like this pure technique um, to quote civilize people, which is sort of horrifying or definitely horrifying. But the other irony is that often lace makers were paid so little that they were forced to supplement their income through sex work. So there's a long connection in different regions where you see you know, when a particular style of lace goes out of fashion from that region, and that's all they know how to make, then they end up on the streets. So, you know, lace is really embodies these, all of these intense dichotomies of history. And what I love about it is that you're able to study every aspect of human history through lace, ugly and beautiful. Elena, thank you for chatting with us today in part one of this week's episodes about the historic lace making industry and, you know, sharing that fascinating bits about the lives of its makers, most of whom were women. Lace spoke to so many of the broader issues that touched their lives. I mean, it was a means to and a marker of money, marriage, social status, and as Elena pointed out, simultaneously an emblem of both feminine vice and virtue. On Thursday, Elena will join us again to speak more about not only her work, but also the contemporary scene for handmade lace, the Brooklyn Lace Guild, and a little bit about her work as a collection specialist at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Until then, dress listeners, may you consider the lives of the makers evidenced in your closet next time you get dressed. And remember, we always love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is where we post images and reels to accompany each week's episode. And if you would like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate it. Just like we appreciate our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartMedia that helps produce the show each and every week. More dressed and more handmade lace coming your way on Thursday. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.